I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest is a three-time Olympian and esteemed member of the New Zealand Black Sticks hockey team and is widely regarded as one of the world's top field hockey players. Hugo Ingles proudly represented the New Zealand team as vice captain at the Tokyo Olympics and is currently training toward his fourth Olympic Games in Paris 2024. He's also played professionally for teams in New Zealand, Holland, Belgium, and India, and is a two-time Commonwealth Games medalist. Alongside his impressive athletic career, Hugo has distinguished himself academically, earning an MBA with distinction from the prestigious Harriet Watt Edinburgh Business School. Leveraging his education, he has delved into the worlds of startups, consulting, and banking. Currently on the path to qualify for his fourth games, Hugo is also passionately dedicated to building high-impact athletes with his close friend and fellow New Zealand Olympian, Marcus Daniel. This thriving community comprised of over 170 world-class athletes is united in their commitment to make a meaningful and lasting impact on the world. Hugo and I talk a lot about the importance of our mental game in sport. If this is something that you want to start learning more about, go ahead and grab one of my free guides, either how to stay focused in competition or tips on gaining confidence in your sport over at laurawilkinson.com slash learn. You'll also receive weekly encouraging emails and be notified when workshops, courses, and trainings are coming up. That's laurawilkinson.com slash learn. It'll also be linked to in the show notes. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast, share your favorite episode so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level so we can bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Hugo Ingalls, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so excited that you are here, even though you are across the world. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be here. Well, I would love to know a little bit of your background. I love to hear where our athletes kind of have came from and their journey. So like, how did you get started in field hockey at the very beginning? Yeah, it's actually, it's not really the common sport for a kid growing up in New Zealand um, with rugby and cricket being being the dominant ones there. So I was fortunate just to have an older brother. And so anything that, that he did, I wanted to try and do, but just a little bit better than him and kind of all aspects and and so hockey was uh the sport we played in the backyard and and yeah grew to love it so were you guys like fierce competitors like how much older is he than you uh he's two years older so yeah i I feel sorry for my my mum having to deal with us because we were we were trouble growing up we um yeah we turned everything into a competition so it was quite nice that we had a little backyard which um mum and dad could could just put us out in and, and we'd go go at it for a few hours after school each day. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. So did he compete like competitively in field hockey for a long time as well? Yeah, yeah. So he played representative hockey kind of all the way up to starting university and, and then he stopped with that. But yeah, it was a really good good sportsman, um, good at cricket, snowboarding, skateboarding. Uh, so yeah, there were, there were lots of good um, good battles in, at home, and and you know probably some of our most fierce ones actually came in, in ping pong. We had a had a table we would often play for hours on end. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I can imagine how intense that must have gotten. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, okay, tell me a little bit about because field hockey. 
it's not super common where, I mean, there are definitely teams here, but it's not kind of in my like, you know, wealth of knowledge. So tell me a little bit about what is it like to kind of come up through the ranks in field hockey? Like, is it just juniors to professional? Like, is there anything going in between? Like, how does it work? Yes, yeah, so it's a great question. It's it's actually a, a, an interesting sport because it is really global in a sense. So throughout Europe, Asia, and the Pacific, it's it's really big. And so growing up in, in New Zealand, there are some pretty clear pathways. So you kind of, you play age group hockey, and if you're good enough, you get, scouted for some New Zealand age group stuff and then you kind of progress through that into a, a junior under 21 New Zealand team and, and that's kind of where your journey starts to get a little bit more real there's there's like junior world cups and and you start to get on the radar if you if you play well there and and there's not a lot actually in between under 21 and senior so you know you either make the jump at that point or it can be can be quite a hard slog for a lot of players um I was sort of 17 at our junior world cup so one of the youngest in the teams and and was lucky to to make the jump the next year into the the men's senior team as a you know pretty skinny young 18 year old and so yeah life changed pretty quick from there okay that's very cool so i have some questions on that first like was it really hard to keep up with those bigger guys since you were on the younger maybe smaller side coming in yeah yeah it was i just was thinking to myself the whole time like what am i doing playing these you know, grown men, and, and there was no way that I thought I was sort of good enough to be to be on the same pitch as them. And a lot of these guys I kind of looked up to as a as a kid, so it was pretty surreal to be out there. I guess the one advantage I had was I was probably a little closer to the ground than most of them, so I could kind of dodge them a little bit better than than most. Nice. So, so that's a great point, though. If you don't feel quite like you belong, you've been looking up to these guys. It's got to be somewhat intimidating. Like, how did you get your mind to the point of like, yeah, I do belong here. I can keep up with these guys. Or, you know, were you in a state of doubt? Like, where where did your head go? And how did you kind of navigate that time? Yes, that's a great question. And I think it's something that probably most athletes go through during their career, and especially in team sports, when you're, when you're competing against such a range of you know, abilities and ages. I don't think the doubts really ever stopped until really late in my career, but I, I think it actually fueled me a lot. So I was, yeah, you know, I was often the first guy on the pitch, the last guy off it, first guy in the gym, last guy out. So I think that self doubt was always, always present. And it probably came from, you know, years of having a bigger older brother and always being second best. So yeah, I think it, it, it took a long time to kind of, figure out that that I was capable enough to be playing on the the world stage and to be comfortable out on the field. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of fuel from it too. I think it's a really, really beneficial part of, of my development was, you know, never quite, never quite settling. Yeah. It sounds like you actually use that to your advantage. Like you probably ended up working so much harder, you know what I mean? Which, which I'm sure made you stronger and faster and like probably better at strategies, different things. What advice would you have for athletes making a big move like that, whether it's a junior to a professional circuit or, you know, going into college like here in the US or any kind of transition time like that, what kind of advice would you have for athletes making that jump? I'm trying to think what the what the most pivotal or most additive piece of the journey was. I do think mindfulness helped a lot and I wish I had learned it sooner. So it was sort of after the twenty twelve Olympics in London, got introduced to meditation and the mental side of the game and I hadn't really touched on that in the from 2008 to 2012 I've just been thinking 
you know, about physical performance and kind of understanding game tactics and strategy and, and that sort of thing. And so I think post the 2012 Olympics, adding that, that mental side to my training weeks was a, a massive step forward. And yeah, I think now with the, you know, the apps that there are and it becoming more of a feature in professional sport, I think there's probably more access to it and I'd probably encourage all young athletes to just start as early as possible because it definitely does start to pay a lot of benefits in the future. A thousand percent agree. We talk about it a lot on this show. I coach that as well because that was a big game changer for me. I love that you hit on that. You can never start that too early. It definitely does make a big difference. But a lot of times, like you said, we don't realize that until you're like so far into your career and you're like, wait a minute, how can I level up here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. So you've played for professional teams in New Zealand, all over Europe, in India. Like, I would love to hear you maybe compare some of those different experiences I can't imagine, like, I was just always an individual athlete. It was kind of always at the same place. Like, yes, I traveled for competitions, but I never had to work with different groups of people and keep adapting to different probably cultures and languages and all of those things. Like, walk us through some of your different experiences in these different environments. I mean, one of the beautiful things and probably one of the hard things about playing team sport is you get put into an environment with 18 to 20 other um guys and so you have to either get along or or find ways to make it work so it's it's um certainly been interesting like playing yeah around the world and in various teams and lots of teams at different stages too where it's you know semi-professional or completely amateur or through to the full professional stuff so it's it's um yeah it's been it's been a crazy journey really it's uh not one that i you know when i was a young kid growing up in new zealand i never expected to have played in, in any of those countries so it's been incredible, and I think one of the biggest joys looking back on my career has been getting to know so many good people and the kind of relationships that you you get to build along the way. I think I've sort of forgotten about a lot of the games I played, but the people you meet along the way are the, are the things that often stick with you. And so, yeah, being able to forge friendships in Europe and uh, New Zealand has been, well, through hockey, has been a real privilege. Do you have any funny stories about just trying to adapt in these different places? Like, was it hard at all? Or did you just kind of like smooth sailing? You just blended right in everywhere you went? Uh, no, it certainly wasn't all smooth sailing. When I was 20, I went to Holland for my first season and uh, probably made every mistake in the book for a young sports person moving, moving abroad. I didn't do a whole lot of research into the team I was going to, had no clue who the coach was and what he was like. And packed my bags and ended up in, in a place called Barn, which is about 40 minutes from Amsterdam in the middle of, of nowhere in Holland and playing for a team that was really terrible. I think we lost every single game um, when I was there and it ended up being a real struggle. So we had you know a bit of a divide between the foreign players and the local players and uh, the club started to blame things on, on us and it was just a really toxic environment and so certainly learned a lot from that experience and just being a lot more careful the next time when I uh, made a decision to move halfway around the world. I love it. I mean, you must have a sense of adventure to not have like researched anything and just shown up, you know, from New Zealand all the way over to Holland. Like I can't imagine that would terrify me. Do you have quite the sense of adventure? I think so. I mean, I guess when I made the hockey, the New Zealand team, I was 18 and had to move out of my hometown to Auckland and so I've kind of always been 
been thrust into new environments, I guess, and, and enjoy. I really enjoy it. Like I love meeting new people and I'm always, always curious around, you know, their life stories and how they've got to where they are. So it's been a real, really cool part of the journey is, is meeting these people and having new experiences and, you know, travel and being in different environments and living in other cultures. It, it kind of broadens you, your perspective too and gives you a, a nice view on the world. Oh, for sure. A much more well-rounded view, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, so what you've played professionally for a long time, but you've also been to three Olympic Games and are going for your fourth in Paris, right? Yeah, that sounds a bit scary, but yeah. (laughs) So what made you kind of shift from playing professionally to wanting to try to make the Olympic team? Well, hockey's actually quite well-placed for both. So the professional leagues run for about six months of the year. And then the rest of the time you can go back and play for your country. So our typical year runs sort of six months in Europe and then three months in New Zealand and three months away with the national team. And then so we're able to actually squeeze it all into into one, which is good. So I've actually, I think I'm on my ninth season in Europe at the moment. And so I have ran that through pretty much the whole way of my career, which has been which has been really cool. That's very cool. So tell me about your first Olympic Games. I know you said at that point you weren't really focused on mindfulness and the mental side. It was more physical. That I'm sure you you know were very young into all of your career here. So like, what was that first games like? Yeah, I'm curious to ask you the same thing afterwards. But um, for me, it was it was um, it was crazy, like an amazing experience and. Like obviously achieving kind of the goal of your whole life um, was great, but I think it also led to the biggest disappointment of my life too, where you set these kind of massive expectations and I was pretty young and I thought that getting to that Olympic Games was going to be the thing that kind of defined me and I think, you know, a lot of playing sports is chasing that next goal and, and that big shiny medal or the, the world championship or whatever it is. And the thing that you don't prepare for is the day after when you wake up and you realize that, you know, your life's going to continue and, and things aren't going to change too much just because you've, you've achieved that one goal and got a whole lot more to go and, and do. So it was an amazing experience. And then on the other side, I was just really disappointed I didn't think I played well didn't think I got enough game time I was disappointed with where the team ended up and so processing that was actually a real a real a really testing time to for a young athlete to think about you know what's next and to do it did I want to do it all again and try to understand like why I was feeling the way I was feeling that's a great point. Like what made you decide to dig into, because obviously you stuck around. So I'm guessing you decided to figure out why you were feeling that way. And I mean, because that's hard stuff. Like some people just want to run from it. It's also really common. Like we call it like the Olympic blues. Like no matter how good or bad you do at the games, like a lot of people get hit with this kind of just drop afterward, this like little depressive episode because you have been planning your whole life or for four years or however long for this big moment. And whether it's good or bad, like you said, it's just over. And you're like, well, what now? And there's just this letdown. You know, you've had all this anticipation, this drive toward this point. And once it's done, like your body and your mind have to kind of like deal with that letdown, you know? And so how did you walk through that? And what did you discover? Like, what was your why after that point? Yeah, it's funny. You phrase it really well. I think I, I remember waking up the day after London and thinking like, huh, what do I do now? You know, it was literally this 
moment of questioning everything and, and like why did I just put in so much hard work to get to this little event that takes two weeks and you know not to trivialize the, the Olympics but in reality it's just another hockey tournament with you know 11 on 11 and and you play with the same ball and, and the same stick and, and nothing's really that different but but all of a sudden you know we I guess the outside pressure and the increased spotlight that goes into those major events it, it builds that up to be this massive mountain that we have to conquer and, and yeah we've certainly left in a bit of a gulf after that of, of you know a little bit lacking motivation and, and drive to keep competing at, at that level and I think the thing that brought me back was just remembering how much I love the game of hockey and for me it's like my creativity gets to be shown on the field and and remembering sort of the kid who played in New Zealand growing up and and just trying to express myself in the most creative way I could on that, which for me is through through field hockey, which sounds you know a bit weird, but I think I think sport's a great way to to do something like that. And so it was just yeah, getting back to the roots and and refining that joy and, and playing again. I love that. I feel like I've heard so many athletes too say like my twelve year old self would be so proud of me right now. And like it sounds so silly, but it is really important to remember why you're doing it because it's a sport, right? It's entertainment. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be exciting. And you lose that sometimes when you're getting paid to do it or you're so seriously focused on a big goal. Like it shifts, you know, and I, it can be a dangerous shift sometimes and, and lead to depression or you're just never satisfied or like you said, super high expectations that you're never going to live up to. Right. So I think that is really important to remember the love of it and why you got into it. And I love that you also recognize that you could just showcase your creativity on the field. I think that's really cool. Like recognizing not just the love of the sport, but what it brings out in you that you get to show to everyone else. Like what made you recognize that part? Cause that's a very cool aspect of it that I don't hear a lot of athletes talk about. I'm not too sure really. I think I watch a lot of football and so I watch guys like Lionel Messi and, and the way he plays the game, I, I think it's just so creative. The things that he can do that no one else can do. I love seeing the, those sparks of creativity coming in every sport. And I always think that, I mean, I play a similar position in hockey where I sit in like a number 10 role and try to break from defense to attack and, and create goal scoring opportunities. And so I think I've always had that in the back of my mind as as my point of difference of being the creative spark in a team that can lead to the breakthrough that gets the goal. And at my moment, I probably my skill isn't scoring the goals; it's sort of creating the chance for others. And so, remembering that that's what I'm good at, and and that's the part of the game that I love. And and it's actually quite funny because I I uh, ended up getting injured about six weeks before Rio. I had a 11 centimeter tear down my calf and so I thought my Olympics was done six weeks out and I was actually really content I was like in in such a good place I think had done a lot of that mental training to be able to sort of look myself in the mirror and know that like at that point I'd done everything I could to get myself in great shape for the games and whether I got to play in Rio or not didn't really define the work that I'd put in, whereas I think if that had happened to me leading into London, it would have been you know, a totally different story and so hard to process. So, yeah, I think finding that child and finding the love for the game and then yeah, a bit of mental skills training just set me in a really good stead and, and it actually was managed to somehow 
make it to the start line at Rio and, and had yeah, probably one of my best tournaments for, for New Zealand, which was pretty special. That's very cool. I love it. All because your mind was in the right place. I love that. That is so cool. And I think what you're pointing at too is like finding what you are good at within your sport. Like, cause we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I think just being able to love that part of it, like I am really good at this part and like recognizing yourself and kind of, you know, being like, I want to showcase this part of me. I think that's really cool. I think we could all stand to do that. Like athletes, if you're listening, like remember, you know, what your best part is, what you bring to the game, whatever sport you're playing and recognize that and be proud of it and like own that and let that be your just kind of magic sauce, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. For you and your sport, what do you think yours was? Well, like you, I mean, I always recognized that I loved it. No matter where I was or what I was doing or how good or bad it was going, like I just loved it. I loved to flip. I loved to fly in the air. It was a cool feeling. So I always enjoyed that. I think for me, I just... I just never want to stop. Like I just wanted to continue pushing the boundaries. Like I always wanted to find out what my potential was. Like, yeah, I wanted to win medals and I wanted to win because I was super competitive, you know, much like you and your brother, you know, I'm, I'm just wired that way. But for me, it was like, I wanted to find out how far I could push the envelope, how hard of dives could I do to the very best of my ability. Like I would study the men because I didn't think the women were that great. I wanted to be as good as the guys, you know, like I wanted to be just an amazing athlete. It wasn't even so much about the scores and the medals, like even though that was a big part of it too. It was just, I wanted to find out how great I could be. And that was just always such a driving force for me. And I think that's what allowed me to just continually like push the limits and kind of do crazy things, you know, because it was about more than just the medal at the end of the competition. So, you know, sometimes like I would do these amazing dives and training. And for me, it was just as satisfying to have done it and only my coach see it because I knew I did it. It didn't have to be in front of the world. Like just for me to know, like was enough. It sounds a lot like that pursuit of perfection, which I recognize too. I love, I mean, in training, I think there's an element of people who will settle and people who won't. And I think I was definitely in the won't settle camp and, and always searching for, you know, if I was hitting shots, I, I would keep hitting until I got that last perfect one. And then maybe then I would walk off. But yeah, I think that pursuit of always being better. Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> Yeah, I always wanted to end on like a good one too. Like it always had to be there. And and I think for me, and, and tell me if this is you also, and I've talked about this like in social media and things like that, but perfection itself is like not truly attainable, but the pursuit of perfection is a good thing when we when we can recognize that like we might never get there, but the pursuit of it and living this life of excellence and trying to be the very best, like there's a driving force in that that I think is really good and healthy but also recognizing I'm never going to get there. It will be a lifelong journey. I've told that to some people who are like, that drives me crazy. I just want to get it. You know what I mean? But for me, knowing that I was always going to have something to strive for to continually get better was good for me. Yeah. I don't know if this is a, a healthy attitude, but even the games when I, when it would probably look from the outside in that it was a perfect game. Yeah. I would always remember the one or two things which I did wrong. So I think we always have that kind of negativity bias. And we do weight that a little bit higher, especially if we are constantly seeking perfection. But yeah, you're spot on, I think. Yeah, it's a fine line for sure. Because I've definitely done that where I've gotten like all tens and one nine and a half. And it's like, oh, you know, it just kind of like leaves you <laughs> just like, you know, you've got some there. But I think it's healthy when you're not weighing your self-worth on that. 
I have done, quote, perfect dives, but gone back and looked at what could be better or that all of them weren't perfect. So I still wanted more from that. And I think that striving for that is good. But like, we have to know that our self-worth or value is not dependent on it happening. You know, I think as long as we can recognize those boundaries, I think it is healthy. Yeah, not totally. I think you're touching on a, a crucial piece of the mental well-being piece, which is that sense of identity and, and knowing that we aren't defined by winning and losing or what goes on in, the, in our chosen fields of sport. For sure. Well, tell me, I know, so you talked about your injury before Rio, but of all your sporting experience, what would you say has been your most difficult time and how did you get through that? Yeah, I think probably as another injury. So in 2019, I'd had a lot of back trouble. I think being a young, small athlete, when I first made the New Zealand team, I wanted to try to get a bit bigger and a bit stronger. And so probably did some silly things in the gym and ended up having quite a problematic back for most of my career and in 2019 it kind of came to a head and I was playing in Holland at the time and I just kept having these kind of relapses with my back problems where recover I'd do all the rehab work and then something else would happen and then would recover do all the rehab work and something else would happen and I just felt like I was on this this kind of treadmill of going nowhere with it and and so I flew home and actually was doing some work with our medical team with the national team and we were getting all the tests and scans done and, and putting all the pieces together and it was actually really fortunate that my family is full of orthopedic surgeons. So my uncle's a, a spine surgeon and two of my cousins are as well. So they they took a look at my back and but my uncle called me up the next day and said, Hugo, if you want to play hockey again, and if you want to go to Tokyo, you need to come down here and we need to get that operated on. And so really luckily for me, within a couple of weeks, I was lying on a table having um, having my back operated on. And, and so that, that actually wasn't the hard part, but the surgery and the recovery from the surgery was was easy. The hard part was standing still for, for six months um, <laughs> to a year with the, with the recurrent back problems. Um, so getting through that and actually like putting a, a line in the sand and having the operation done, it, it actually um, made things so much easier than just sort of trying and failing and trying and failing. Well, so I guess, was that a gift of time for you? Because having that, you said in 2019, you know, and then the Tokyo games got postponed a year until 2021. Like, did you need all that extra time to recover too? Yeah. Yeah. I was really fortunate. So I had my back up in March of 2020. It's just a minor, it was a minor surgery. So it was nothing like major, major. And they thought, yeah, I would be very touch and go for um, Tokyo if it went ahead and, and then fortunately I got another year to, to prepare and I've heard, heard tons of stories of, of athletes who it didn't work out well for and so yeah, I guess I was just one of the lucky ones that got that extra time. I know. What a what a weird time, right? We've never experienced anything like that. I hope we never do again. Like that was such a strange blip in our history, you know. So I know you're not finished yet because like we said, you're still playing. You're You're in Germany right now for a competition actually and you're aiming for Paris next year. So what is your favorite sporting memory so far? I mean, obviously, beating my brother at ping pong was pretty <laughs> high. <laughs> Forever bragging, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. 
for sure. And actually, me and um, Mark Daniel, who I work with, we have some fierce battles now, so I think he's taken over the role of my, my old brother. But in field hockey, yeah, it would have to be the, the Rio games. We actually ended up losing this heartbreak of a quarterfinal to Germany. We were turning up with, I think, about three minutes to go, and with seven seconds to go, they beat us 3-2. So it was this... This crazy game, but just, yeah, the whole experience and sort of the way I responded from the injury and then was able to perform really well and, and just left that whole event feeling, feeling really full. Now, I have to ask you, so you play professionally for different teams throughout the years, and then you come together with the New Zealand players for the Olympic Games. Is that a hard adjustment to reconnect with these guys? Or are they guys who you've played with for a million years and you tend to know a lot of them? Like, what is that adjustment like in getting ready for a huge tournament like the Olympic Games? There's a real mixture. So actually, a few of the guys I'm playing here with in Germany um, are also in the New Zealand team. And two of them I've known since I was about six or seven years old. I've played with them since I was sort of seven. So... We all grew up in the same little town in, in New Zealand and have played together in Holland and, and here. So in terms of creating a bond with those guys, it's, it's pretty easy. But then now being, I guess, one of the oldest players in the team, there's some new guys coming through who I've never met before. I've never, I've never heard of them until they played in the, in the national team. So it is a bit harder not being there full time and you don't quite have the same ability to, to know what they're going to do or to to find the gaps with them, which you might with other players. So for us, it, it is a big challenge actually for our, our team to accelerate that learning as fast as we can because we don't really have too much time to waste and, and um, qualification this year is going to be extremely difficult. So yeah, so how does that work? So you guys have qualifications like to get your country to the Olympics, right? Yeah, correct. So we play Australia for a position. So all the continents get one spot in Oceania occasionally we'll have teams from the Pacific Islands play but but this year it's just us in Australia for that spot Australia are typically one of the best teams in the world so that'll be a a big challenge for us but one we're looking forward to and then if we miss out there then we get a second chance at a a recharge tournament so all the teams that, that miss out depending on their ranking will go into those two tournaments and then the rest of the spots are are up for grabs and so yeah that qualifies the team and then and then you have to be selected which is normally a month or two out from the the games because i was thinking like yeah just a few months before but like if you're having qualifications like the year before how do you balance playing for your professional teams but then trying to do these olympic qualifiers and then teaming up for the olympics like how do you split that time it's actually very very tough so there's always a bit of push and pull between club teams and the national teams and but recently we missed a series with the national team because we're in finals time here in Germany with our clubs so it is really difficult to balance and and get right there are windows of international hockey which the clubs don't play in so typically it's it's kind of getting away and, and getting stuck in with the New Zealand guys through those periods and then the European winter is also a great time for us because it's summer, summer back home. So there's no field hockey in Europe and, and we can head home and do a good block of training. Oh, that's good. That's very cool. Is it hard sometimes? Because I'm imagining that I don't know for sure. Maybe you can clarify this, but like you're playing professionally. So you're getting paid to play on your professional team. 
But when it's part of like Team New Zealand, is that just because you want to be part of the Olympic team or do you get paid for that as well from your national governing body or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much just for the love of your country and love of the game. So the national body have supported us a little bit in the past, but yeah, it's a pretty lean sport in New Zealand. So most of our guys are, are either playing professionally or working full time in New Zealand. So we're, um, I think we've been the only team in the, in the top 10 with that arrangement. So. Yeah, I always, always respect our guys so much for the the dedication and what they put into the black shirt, um, which the New Zealand shirt, because it's certainly a difficult environment. Yeah, I think that's a good point because a lot of people don't realize that most Olympians like don't get paid to do what they do. Like a few lucky ones might get sponsors or be able to play professionally as they're doing it, but a lot of people are paying to do this thing they love. We're doing it for the love of sport, and it's just because we love our sport, you know? And so I think that's just really important to remind people. And so you did mention like some of these guys are balancing full-time jobs and training, and I'm kind of familiar with that, but you also earned an MBA, like from a very prestigious business school, why you are playing professionally. Like, how was that balance for you? You're also playing for the Olympic team. You're playing professionally. You're getting your MBA. Like, how do you juggle all of that? Yes. It's been pretty easy, to be honest. I kind of like doing things, so I'm always, <laughs> um, I don't know, I'm always busy, I guess, and I really love learning. So I did an undergraduate, and doing the MBA was kind of fun for me. I, I quite like sort of digging into business and case studies and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, a lot of hard work, and, and sometimes I don't get the balance right between, you know, doing work, training, and, and sleeping enough. I really enjoy it. I, I don't think I would be very much fun for anyone around me if I was sitting still for too long. <laughs> That's good to know about yourself, for sure. <laughs> Have a good direction. <laughs> Keep yourself busy. What was the goal with your MBA? What did you want to do with that? And what have you done with that? I mean, I think when you're playing overseas and in Europe, it's quite. it was quite hard for me to hold down my job in New, a job in New Zealand. So I started in banking, finance, and then was traveling to Europe sort of for this three month blocks to play club hockey and then with the national team. So it's actually finding it really difficult just to, to maintain a stable job whilst doing that. So the NBA for me was like a nice way to keep my development going while still playing pro hockey. Um I was really, really focused not to kind of come out the other side of sport um, with only sport and being a, a field hockey player, you're never going to make enough money to retire off um, through that. So it was pretty apparent to me that I... I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So it was um, yeah, it was always in front of my mind to keep progressing. And, and you know, luckily, it's kind of landed in a really landed in a really nice way with working for a charity called High Impact Athletes, which Marcus Daniel, who's a, a pro tennis player, and I... I run together and, and yeah, we're, I guess, taking a lot of the learnings from that MBA and, and the study and the sports life, um, and, and mashing them all up into, into our charity now. Well, yeah. And I love it. And I want you to tell us more about high impact athletes, but first, like, how did you get connected with Marcus and where did high impact athletes come from? Like, where did this whole brainchild come from? We met at the 2016 games in Rio. Uh, we actually got room together there and I think meeting each other in that circumstance was really cool. I saw Marcus at his best where he's trying to perform as, as well as he can for the country that he loves. And I guess he saw 
sort of same. And so we, yeah, we formed a bit of a friendship there. And, and I have to say the brainchild for HIA sits firmly in, in Marcus's camp. So he, he had gotten to a position in tennis where, um, he kind of was fortunate enough to know there was going to be food on the table for the next few weeks or months and was more than breaking even, which is great for a sports, for an athlete, as we've chatted about. And, and I guess living in New Zealand, you, to play your sport, you have to travel a long way. And, and this wasn't sitting 100% right with both of us. I guess I've played throughout Africa, Asia, and we've been in some of the poorest countries in the world and stared down the face of poverty. And, and I was kind of looking for a, a way to give back. And Max was, was in, in a similar boat, but just probably a couple of years ahead of me on that journey. And, and so he was giving, giving back a percentage of his earnings from tennis to to charity and being the kind of skeptical sports people that we are we had a lot of doubts about the charity sector and the ones that we saw sort of around us and at home we never really felt that um they were having the sort of impact which we wanted to spend our money on Um, and so we were searching for a bit more than that and what we found was that the very best charities can have hundreds or even thousands of times the impact of the average charity and when you look a bit more globally, if you're giving, there are just opportunities that are completely mind-blowing from a dollar-to-impact perspective. Yeah, and so we were doing all this kind of personally to to learn and to, to use our sport to, to do some good in the world. And it was going, you know, pretty well. And, and then COVID hit and all of a sudden the tennis world stopped, the hockey world stopped, so we weren't making any money. And, and so Marcus thought, why don't we build a platform where other athletes can learn about this kind of framework of giving, if you like. So he started to build that platform. I was working in, uh, in banking and, and so I was the, the first athlete to agree to do it with him. And then from there, we've, we've kind of multiplied many more times to now helping over 180 athletes with their, with their impact, which is, yeah, pretty, um, mind-blowing to say. It's really awesome. So tell me more, what does that mean? You're helping athletes with their impact. What are you helping them do? Yeah, so we basically connect athletes to the best charities in the world. So we've got three cause areas that we operate in, and we work across global health and poverty, which is kind of looking after humans, um, animal welfare, and then climate change. And and like in sports, how we try to optimize every day of our training, our sleep, our nutrition, and our performance on the field, we kind of have taken that approach to the charity world where we want to optimize to do the most good we can with our resources, which is typically our time and our money. And we're really fortunate that we get to partner what we've now partnered with these amazing research organizations. So on the human side, we work with an organization called GiveWell who are kind of like the gold medalists of charity evaluation they are incredible. Like they do around 40,000 hours of expert research each year into finding the best giving opportunities. Stuff, yeah, they've evaluated many, many thousands of charities. They've been around for about 20 years. They've only ever recommended nine. And this year they cut it to four. So it kind of gives you a sense of the rigor that they put these charities through before they make a recommendation. And so I guess Marcus and I have been you know, somewhat good at our sports. We have no idea about charity evaluation. So being able to draw on these types of organizations to provide all the research and to go really deep on what the impact these charities are doing has been 
I think one of the reasons why high impact athletes has has grown to where it is because you know athletes are really afraid of of doing something and then having a gotcha moment in social media or or in the public and so having that kind of deep evidence base means they can confidently you know, talk to their fans about why they're giving where they're giving and be really confident that they are having an impact in the world. I love that on so many levels. I love that you're giving the athletes confidence that they can share a really good cause that they know your money will impact in a positive way. I mean, we've definitely, my husband and I, we've given a bunch of different things over the years and we, having researched some of it, realized that a lot of our money was going to like staff and not actually the people you're trying to impact. That's really hard when you start to realize that, like, what have I been doing and what is this, you know, and it does cause you to like start looking at things differently. And so I love that you guys have taken this to a whole new level and that you're helping athletes do it. So I do have a question though, like if you have athletes that maybe have their own nonprofit or want to start a charity of some sort, would you have advice for them or would you suggest they partner with one of these organizations that you guys have already kind of researched and vetted out? The way we set it up with individual athletes is three tiers. So they can be a supporter, donator, or a pledger. And so pledgers give 2% or more, donators make a donation, and supporters just support HIA. And if we have a bigger athlete who's looking to do something on their own, then what we often suggest to them is that they bring HIA in as like an impact advisor. And that that means that we can start to draw on the resources of our charity evaluators and our, our kind of relationships in the philanthropic landscape. So if an athlete is making a grant that's five figures or more, we can typically actually bring in one of the evaluators to do some work with them on making it as effective as possible. Otherwise, for for the most part, athletes are just giving directly to the charities through through HIA or one of our, our partners. That's very cool. Something I heard you say on another podcast was just that maybe I should just have you explain this to us, but like, how does donating and giving money, like, what does that mean to your career as an athlete? From my personal experience, really did change my relationship with my sport. So I think it touches back on some of that identity piece, which we spoke about earlier, where, you know, it broadened my identity beyond just being Hugo, the hockey player. It was every single day I was training or competing. I was competing for something bigger than myself. And I'm quite an emotional fear hockey player. I am known to probably yell at the ref more than I should and <laughs> care more about winning or losing than I really should. And what I found with making a pledge to give a percentage of my earnings from sport to the most effective charities in the world is it it actually mellowed me out a little bit. It kind of brought me down on the on the highest highs in it. And when I was, you know, crying in car parks after defeats, it, it brought me up a little bit because I knew I was still, you know, at least I was still doing some good in the world. So from that point of view, it's been a really big value add to make my life about more than just sport. We also know kind of anecdotally there's some cool scientific research of of the well-being effects that it can have for people. So altruism has a really clear link to building that well-being piece. And there's also some links to actual physical performance where, where they did some studies and when the person was exerting themselves physically for to give something away versus for themselves, they actually were able to physically exert themselves more. So we haven't tested that out too much, but I, I find it like quite a cool anecdote to, to talk about sometimes. It is for sure. When you have purpose, a purpose-based performance, 
it's going to drive you far more than if you're doing it out of fear or something else. You know, it's like the mom with a baby, like if her baby's in distress, she can lift a car, like, and she'd never normally be able to do that, right? But when it's a purpose beyond herself, she can do something amazing. And that's for all of us, I think, when you have a purpose, when you're doing something, whether you're winning or losing, it's making a difference, right? You have a purpose in your life beyond yourself. It does allow you to physically do more than you could normally do. And I think that's really cool. Well, Hugo, where can we follow and connect with you online and learn more about High Impact Athletes? Amazing. So High Impact Athletes, we're at www.highimpactathletes.org. Um, and we're on social media. I think if you search High Impact Athletes, you'll find us. And then I'm on I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm not the most prolific on either of those. But I would actually really love it if your listeners could follow our athletes because I think all these amazing people that are, have become part of HIA are just doing such incredible stuff in the world and we really think they're the champions and would love them to get more credit than they are now. Where can we find a list of these athletes? So on our, on our website, we've got an athletes tab and we've got a growing roster on there. So we'd love for everyone to take a look on there and then, and then follow them on social media and, and um, give them some, some likes for what they're doing. Awesome. Well, we will definitely link to all of that in the show notes. Hugo, thank you so much for coming on Pursuit of Gold. And we will be cheering you on toward Paris in 2024. Thanks, Laura. It was awesome to talk. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.